All right, all right. If you could begin making your way back to your seats and grab your Bibles. Grab them and head on over to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. It was last week that we split Ecclesiastes chapter 11 into two parts. Um, and, and I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to have done so because I'm actually probably a little bit more excited about this morning's message than I was even last week's and I was really excited about last week's. So that might be a bit of an oversell, so hopefully I don't underdeliver. Um, but we'll get into Ecclesiastes chapter 11. But what you have in the beginning of chapter 11 is you have Solomon beginning to give instructions on, on how to manage finances wisely. And it's not the first time that he's spoken to that topic, but it is the perhaps one of the more explicit ways and places that he gives some advice about what that looks like and how how living in a godly way should should include a, a wise biblical management of your finances. Uh, and then it's in the latter section of Ecclesiastes chapter 11, specifically verses 7 to 10, that he begins to give specific instructions on what it looks like to live wisely. And so as we got to chapter 9, verses 7 to 10, that point in the book was by and large the climax. It's where he gives the fifth of five carpe diem, seize the day sections of this book, and he does so it at that point and in such a way that he is no longer just recommending that you consider a few things. He is now commanding that you and I live in a certain way. And he wants us to be joyful. He wants us to see the gifts that God has given us and to rejoice in them. And then what happens on the backside of chapter 9, verses 7 to 10, is he begins to walk through really what amounts to be his final instructions which are summaries of where he has been at different points in the book. In many ways, the entire book is about living wisely. But he has some more specific instruction as to what that looks like and even breaks it down into such a way that if you're older, living wisely looks a certain way. Or if you're younger, living wisely looks a certain way. And Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verses 7 to 10 breaks those down and we step into that. And if any section of Ecclesiastes fit directly with the goals we've been trying to pursue over this series, it is this section of Ecclesiastes because Solomon is going to specifically talk about the days that we live with and the days that we live in. And one of the goals that we have is that we'd see every area of every day. All areas of life as opportunities to worship. That we are not just indifferent as worshipers, choosing when we worship and when we don't worship, but we are at all times, in every location, worshiping. The question becomes who or what is the object of our worship? We want to see first and foremost that all areas of life are opportunities for worship. That meal that we'll enjoy today with our mothers and celebration them is an opportunity to worship. The sun that we have an opportunity to feel its heat and its rays is an opportunity for worship. The park that you may visit today, the air that you breathe, all of those are opportunities for worship. Certainly what we do in this room here and now is an opportunity for worship, but it is not the end all and it is not the sum of all opportunities to worship. It is a part. But on the back side of that, really the flip side of every, every 
area of life being an opportunity to worship, you have naturally every area of life being a potential trap in idolatry. And so what do we, what do, we do with that? To be aware of where those traps are is significant, but also to make the, the adjustments. And then thirdly, that we may see that an abundant life is found in and through Jesus Christ, that having His definition of what life looks like and what our purpose in life is, is where we find abundancy. It's where we find the, the, the flourishing of who He's created us to be. And so in that, we don't set our gaze on money, for example, to be the end all of our pursuits. Now, money just becomes a tool that gets leveraged for making disciples. Because an abundant life is one focused on disciple making, as Jesus told us to do. And so all the areas in life, and money as one particular example, becomes a tool that can be leveraged for the goal of making disciples. It's not something we live for, it's just something that we use. And so as we get into Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 7 to 10, Solomon's going to begin and continue breaking this down for us. And so before we go any further, let's pray and then we'll look at verse 7 and think through some, some summary ideas that Solomon has and then we step into verse 8 and we begin to hit and look at the instructions that he gives to those who are a little bit older. But uh, let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we are grateful for today. Lord, we're grateful for the women in our life. We thank you for those gifts. God, we thank you for, uh, for the way that you and the ways that you provide for us. God, help us to have and live with a perspective that is informed by your word. God, help us to, to see what the, the definition of an abundant life as you identify and as you give definition for it. And Lord, help us to aim our lives at that. Lord, we pray now that you'd come and speak to us through your word. Would you guard my words and keep them from error? Would you give us ears to hear this morning? That we may be able to, to understand what it is that you have said and be able to see how and where it applies in our life. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and let's go to verse 7 together. Transitioning from wise investing to wise living, Solomon gives a, a really a broad statement in verse 7 that's just a good summary to offset and really mark that now I'm changing topics here, guys, and he's going to begin talking about our lives and our days. But he says in verse 7, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Now what Solomon is saying there is it's good to be alive. It's good to be alive. It, it's good to be able to see the light of day. It is good to feel the sun's warmth. There's a perspective here that Solomon is pleading with us to have and to acknowledge and to live with. Now, this is set against the backdrop of what he has been saying for the past 11 chapters that he'll even repeat a few times in this chapter where everything in life is vanity. Well, if we 
understand the perspective he's trying to communicate, then we can understand how those things fit together. Because what the vanities of life are is living life for those things. Money and wealth and pleasure and all of those areas of life are vanity if that's what you pursue. But if you pursue a definition of life and even an abundancy of life as the Bible defines it, then then life isn't full of vanities. It's sweet. It's pleasant to see the sun. It's good to feel the sun's warmth. I mean, it's just, I was finding myself even wondering, how often do I just stop and pause and, and just marvel at this big old yellow ball of fire that's floating in the sky that is sustaining life here on earth? I mean, it's just tremendous. And it's rays that, that warm our day. I stepped outside a few, well, about a half hour ago to get some stuff for Carrie ready. And it, it's going to be a warm day. The sun is warm. It's good to feel that warmth. Some of the most enjoyable moments that I had when training for the half marathon uh, were some of the later runs that I did. Um, I would run really early in the morning so that it wouldn't conflict with family time because I was putting in about two hours of running at that point at the very tail end. And so what happened, though, is that I would leave the house and I'd get onto the course and I'd be running and I'd end up on Washington Township Road before they had completely paved it through. But I would have been there and I arrived at such a point in the morning that the sun was just popping up over the mountain. And so it was this beautiful scene because there's farmland on either side of that road when you get past Good News Camp towards Walmart and you have what would have been the dew or the, the light fog rising off of the crops that would have been there, but the sun cresting over the mountain and it, you know, for whatever reason, like the Lord put the right song on my headphones at that point in time, like it was just majestic. And, and, and I think Solomon wants us to stop and see those moments and to worship in those moments. So we have, we have an expression very similar in our own culture, right? Is it stop and smell the roses? Don't be so busy that you just ignore the beauty of what's around you. And Solomon's telling us, look, it's good to be alive. And he's going to actually now step in when he gives instructions to the older and instructions to the younger to, to, to just shine the spotlight a little bit on some of the difficult aspects of life. But he does so first identifying, it's good to be alive. There may be difficult days in life, but rejoice in the God who makes that sun feel warm. He's helping your tomato plants grow. But we don't want our worship to terminate on a day or the sun. We want our worship to roll up to the one who has gifted us that day, who has made the sun. And I think if we could summarize the rest of Ecclesiastes 11 in these three verses, it would be to say that we are to worship the day. Excuse me, to not worship the day, but to worship the God who has gifted us the day. Solomon wants us to not worship the day but worship the God who has gifted us the day. And so he's going to be giving instructions and going to begin giving instructions to those who are older. And he will do so in verse 8. In verse 9, he transitions to giving instructions to those who are younger. I'll let you figure out what camp you sit in. All right, we're not going to 
identify any, pigeonhole anybody here, okay? But those that are older, here in verse 8, Solomon's going to be shining the spotlight on some things that you probably experience. And for those that are younger, I think there's implied in his instruction, the instructions to take note. You know, mentally jot these things down. Don't, don't forget these. File them away because one day you're going to be older and these are going to be helpful things to remember. And he does so really in reverse when you get to verses 9 and 10. When he gives instructions to the younger, those that are probably experiencing firsthand what he writes about. But for the older, it, it's implied that, hey, remember what that was like. And so he begins in verse 8 to give these instructions after saying, look, it's good to be alive. He says this, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So Solomon here is going to give instructions to the older and he's going to tell them, look, rejoice in the days that you have. Rejoice in all of the days that you have. This is not the first time that he has ever told us to rejoice. He has said this several other times. He said it in chapter 2. He said it in chapter 3. He said it in chapter 5. He said it in chapter 8. He now says it again here in chapter 11. This reference in chapter 11 is the only time in Ecclesiastes that Solomon says rejoice and does not specifically mention God as the one who has gifted you what you're to rejoice in. And so I think we need to just see that he's got, an, he's got a, a picture of God having gifted us things to rejoice in. We worship not the day, but the God who has gifted us the day. And so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. He gives encouragement and a command here to rejoice. But he continues, but let him remember the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Now we need to ask ourselves, in what sense is it vanity? Because the answer to that question is an important one and helpful for us interpreting what Solomon is saying. I think what Solomon is saying there in both the command to rejoice and the acknowledgement that there will be days of darkness is he is telling those who are older and then all of those who are younger to take note, don't rejoice in your days. Don't worship the day. To worship the day will be vanity. To worship the day will be meaningless because if you place all of your hope in the day, you're going to find that the days of darkness will lead to great despair. So worship not the day, but worship the God who has gifted you the day. Don't put your hope and faith and trust in just having good days. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Worship not the day. See, the gospel is not the guarantee that you and I are going to have great days from the moment of our salvation to the moment we go live in eternity. 
The gospel is not the guarantee of that. The gospel is the guarantee that our sins have been atoned for and we have a promise of eternity with God and He is the end. He's not the means to any greater end. God isn't the the means by which we go and find ourselves having great American dream days. We worship not the day, but we worship the one who has gifted us the day. Because the days of darkness will be many. And all that comes is vanity. Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not find out anything that will be after him. Solomon is telling us there, look, in the good days and the bad days, know that God is sitting sovereign over all of those days. He hasn't taken a nap on the days of darkness. He hasn't somehow forgotten about you on those days. He's doing something. He's working in some way. And he really returns to that idea here in verse 8. Rejoice in all the days that you live. But no, the days of darkness will be many. And so don't put your hope in the days. We worship not the day. We worship the God who has gifted us the day. And it's in verse 9 that he begins to transition and give instructions to those who are younger. And by implication, I think there's, there's, there's here a... a encouragement for those who are older to not forget what it was like to be younger. I think there can even be a tendency, I was actually just thinking about this the other day, we, it was Friday night, we went to uh, Second and Charles, and, uh, and they had the, a book set up in the middle aisle, and it was all like, um, like teenage stuff. And I just kind of found myself snickering to myself, like, yeah, like those teens have so much that they need books written about them for. Like, there's just like a temptation, I think, when you're out of a phase of life to perhaps look back on the phase of life that you had been in at some point and think like, oh, that's just not a really a big deal. And, and there's a temptation there. And so for those of us that are older, for those that are older, to, to not forget what he has to say to the younger And what they're experiencing is important. And he then continues in verse 9 and gives us the first verb of command here in this section. He'll give us four different verbs over the next two verses in verses 9 and 10. He'll give us two in verse 9 and he'll give us two in verse 10. The first of which is rejoice. He's commanding those who are younger to do something. He's telling them to be glad. Rejoice, O young man. In your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk, which is the second verb of command that we have, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you in to judgment. So let's just take verse 9, we'll break it down into two different parts because you have the two different commands there, the one being to rejoice and the other to be walk. We'll take the first one first, rejoice, O young man, in your youth. The question should be asked, why does Solomon feel compelled to write specifically to those who are younger, commanding them to be glad 
for and about and during their days. I think perhaps part of the reason is that youth can have a certain angst with it. Can have a certain angst with it. Those immediately graduating college probably feel as if they're not where they want to be. I don't have the job I want. Those maybe in high school aren't sure what to major in when they get to college. There's a certain angst of youth. I remember this plainly when I was that age because there was all of a sudden, upon getting married, decisions that I had to make that I didn't have to make before that. So last week I gave you the illustration or the, the, the story briefly of how um, we had received a check in the mail that exactly covered the amount that we needed to fix the vehicle issue that we had. Well, that vehicle issue brought a lot of angst with it. I was driving the bravado around and didn't feel like it was riding correctly and we had gone up to my parents' house. We were married at this point, but we had gone up to my parents' house probably to do laundry because it was free there and we didn't have to pay money at the laundromat to do it. And we just spend, spend the day with mom and dad, get a meal, do laundry, and the bravado just doesn't feel right. So I called my dad as we're getting into my parents' subdivision. I said, hey, uh, get, get in your car, and I want you to follow me as I drive around the subdivision. Something doesn't feel right, but I can't tell what's going on. And so he does so, and we realize and we learn that my back tire is jumping off the ground on this car. So that we got a problem here. Well, we had bought the car from a dealer that was in the city where my folks lived. And so we just took it over there. We knew the dealer personally, dropped it off, put the keys in there, and just said, hey, take a look at it and let us know what was going on. Well, there was angst when we got the call about what was going on. It was, well, you need two new tires and you need a new rear axle because the thing's broke. Okay, so how much is that going to cost me? And, and then so he gives the number and it's, there's a tremendous amount of angst there because now I have to make an adult decision. Before, mom and dad would decide that, but now I'm married, and I have to own this one myself. And so in talking with Carrie, we reminded ourselves that it's cheaper to fix the car you have than buy a car that you don't, and so we're, all right, we'll do it. And, and so it was in that context then, after kind of being real anxious about how we were going to get that 800 bucks and all of that stuff, that then the check comes in the mail and it just covers the whole thing. And it was just an awesome way of the Lord providing, but providing in the midst of that angst, in the midst of those adult decisions. And Solomon's saying, look, rejoice. Rejoice. There, there's, there's an angst there, but you need to rejoice. The uh, song that one um, or the band that won the Grammys for the best new uh, duo, pop duo, they won for a song called Stressed Out. The band 21 Pilots. The chorus goes, if we could, or I wish we could turn back time to the good old days when mama sang us to sleep, but now we're just stressed out. And, and that song captured captured the whole, the whole entertainment scene because it encapsulated this angst that youth seems to bring with it. I remember when we were looking for our first home in Indiana, there was a certain level of angst there, and, and part of that's because it's this idea that I'm not where I'm supposed to be or I'm not where I want to be, and our realtor kind of fueled that, and, and, and to be quite honest, the, the, the 
realty business fuels that because they use the word starter home and they just toss it around. Well, let's get you a starter home. What does starter home imply? That you're going to need another home in like three years. I mean, so that you're, they're, they're implying that this is not good enough for you, but it's just a good place to start. And so he took us through all of these little cottages in Winona Lake, and he's like, well, this will be a good starter home for you. I'm like, man, you got to understand, like, we don't want to have to do this again in three years. Like, we, we want a home. Forget the starter. We want a place to live where we can have kids and have enough space. Like, I don't want to have a baby and then have to go find a new house. And we had to tell him eventually. We're like, okay, you've got to find us a place where I can put 40 teenagers in the living room and in the backyard without any issue because I need to be able to have my youth group over. And we, we finally found a place that had been on the market for about a year. It had dropped 20 grand in the course of that year, and we were actually unable to afford it. It was really interesting. We looked back through some of the legal pads that we had been writing, uh, taking our notes of, of houses as we did in internet searches. That house showed up in one of the very first searches that we had done um, as we looked at it online, but then it quickly got scratched because we realized, like, we just can't afford it. But enough time had passed, and they lowered the price in such a way that we were able to find a house that our family could live in, and it wasn't a starter home. It was a home. It was a home. Angst can come with youth because you can even overreach sometimes and try to take more than you're capable of supporting. I did some rough calculations this week. Uh, I didn't fill out an application for a mortgage, but I found a calculator on the Internet and just kind of plugged in some numbers and I learned that the bank would let me borrow double of what I would be comfortable borrowing. So I, I know it's in my budget. I know what I would have available and what would be comfortable paying towards a mortgage. The bank would say, here, you can take double that. I wish we could turn back time to the good old days when mama just sang us to sleep. But now we're just stressed out because we've overreached. So youth has a certain angst to it. You wonder, where am I going to go to college? What am I going to study? They sit freshmen in high school down with their counselors and say, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? There's, there's angst there. You don't have to know what you're going to do until you're a sophomore in college, as long as you take the right classes those first two years. You got to take the gen ed. You can't, you can't take like pottery 101 to 301 and not take math and just waste those credits. Like, you got to be smart about it, but you don't have to know until you're two years into college. And then it's time to figure out what you're going to do. This is really interesting. When, when we were, I mean, we went to a Christian college, and so this angst was felt on a Christian campus probably a little differently than it may have been felt elsewhere. Um, but the, the women, particularly on Grace campus, if they did not have a serious relationship by the time they were seniors, the angst it accelerated to untold degrees of angst because they wondered if their lot in life was to be single because they were going to potentially graduate college and have missed their opportunity to find love. I mean, there would be angst there. And the joke was that all of the women, or at least a high percentage of them, and this was their joke. This was not my joke. Okay, let me be, be clear about this. All right, just so that we're, uh, this is their joke, that they, they were there for their MRS degree. Now, Grace doesn't have a degree that reads that on a diploma. That would be the Mrs. degree. They were there, but if, if they found themselves towards the end and they weren't with a significant prospect, there's an angst to that. 
This is one of the major reasons why those who are younger need those who are older. Because those who are older can give some perspective. And then go, wait a minute, hang on. This isn't the end of anything. Let me tell you about when I was your age and this happened. And let me, let me tell you about what the Lord did and how he provided for us. And this is one of the major reasons why the church is to be intergenerational. So that the church itself is, is an area and a place where the older and the younger can come together. And when the younger have this angst of life, the older are able to go, oh, wait a minute, wait a Yeah, it feels like a huge deal right now, and it's important, but let's have some perspective. Let me share with you what God's done in my life. Let me tell you how he's provided for me. See, the older have been there, and I think that's part of the reason why Solomon doesn't give this command to the older, because they've been there. They have a different perspective, but he commands the younger to rejoice. Don't walk through life with this angst. Rejoice. Secondly, he commands them to walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. It's an interesting phrase there. I think the best way for us to understand that phrase is to understand it in light of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verses 7 to 10 where he specifically wrote, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. And three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we asked ourselves the question, in what sense has God already approved what we do? And I think it's in this sense that God gives approval, and this is where 11, the second part of that, comes in. We're just walking the ways of your heart. And it's if you are aiming to honor the Lord with your life and make choices that are godly and, and using godly wisdom to inform those choices, make a choice. Pull the trigger. Walk in the ways of what your heart wants. I misattributed the quote. I said it was from Francis of Assisi. It wasn't. The quote was actually from Augustine of Hippo. And it was, love the Lord and then do what you want. And it sounds like that quote's in antithesis to itself. But the idea there is, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your heart's going to want to do what honors Him. And so when you're faced with choices that there's no clear biblical command to do this or to do that or to not do that or to not do that, well, what does your heart want to do? I use the example that morning of, you know, if I, if I call my, my, my family, the kids from outside in the yard to inside the house because it's time to play inside and no longer outside, there is a ton of freedom for them to make choices as to what they're going to play with. They can get the baby dolls, they can get the Legos, they can get the Mega Blocks, they can go find trucks, they can get the costumes and do dress up, they can get Play-Doh, coloring books. I mean, there's all sorts of things for them to do inside the house, and I've given them approval to do any of those things inside the house. 
And I think it's in that sense that Solomon is giving us this command that the God has already approved what you do. Walk in the ways of your heart. So if you're working within the box that God has given and revealed in his word, there is the time and place where you just got to pull the trigger and make a choice. Just got to do it. One of my life verses is Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Pursue God first. And I understand this verse to me and that as I pursue God in delighting in him, that he'll place in my heart the desires he wants my heart to have. So when we finally went and looked through this house that we ended up buying, we fell in love with it immediately. We didn't buy the house because there was a flaming billboard that dropped from the sky into the backyard that said, buy this house. We bought the house because we wanted to. We had, we had done the work that I think we had needed to do in prep for that moment. We had had conversations with our banker who went to our church and we had the ability to sit down with him and go, all right, help us to realistically understand what we can afford. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, what, what can you give me for a loan? What can we afford? And we knew where we, we stood and we knew what was available and we had, had the opportunity to talk and gain wisdom from both sides of our parents. And when it came time to walk through this house, we just, this is, this is it. We can afford it. Fits the things that we have been looking for. So we began making plans to buy it. I don't intend for this next statement to sound arrogant, and perhaps that, that makes some of you nervous that I have to give the disclaimer like that. I came here because I wanted to. Now, if, if taken on its face, that could sound actually arrogant, and I don't intend for it to sound that way. Because I wanted to, after two and a half, three years of asking God to very clearly reveal, both to Carrie and I, and to a church, where we were supposed to be. We had spent time talking with our folks. We had spent time pursuing God, we had spent time asking him to give clear indications, and some of those clear indications were, were two or three no's from churches before you guys. And we rejoiced, honestly, just as much in those no's as we did in your yes, because that no was an answer to prayer. And it was a very clear, specific answer to prayer. That's what is what we wanted, because we wanted to follow him. And so when it came time for you guys to do a vote, and I hadn't even left the sanctuary, and we wanted to get off the property as quickly as we could so that we could kind of start driving away and, and avoid learning what the vote was when we were on site, and then our daughter lost her lovey somewhere, and we had to spend the next 20 minutes searching for that. And so I get the results in my car. John Fitz brings them up to me, overwhelmingly in favor, overwhelmingly yes. And I had said on that Saturday night when we were doing the Q&A session that I, you guys weren't getting an answer until later on in that week because I wanted to give us time to go and, and talk to folks and my, our, both of our parents and other godly leaders in, in our lives and just say, all right, hey, help us discern this. But we had drove away and weren't even to Chambersburg. Driving up 316, we ended up 
making our way to Lancaster. We weren't even to Chambersburg, and our language changed. And it became, well, all right, well, when, when we're here later, we, we, we knew. Now, we, we didn't tell you guys until like Tuesday. We may just sweat it out for a little bit. <laughs> but we came because we wanted to. I married my wife because I wanted to. And there, there wasn't a verse in the Bible that said, go to Grace Church. But what there was, was delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Pursue obedience in what He has clearly revealed. Seek out to apply godly wisdom from godly wise people. And then when you're faced with a choice to make that's not clearly instructed in God's Word, if you've sought Him, if you've sought to apply godly wisdom from godly people, it's time to pull the trigger. So he gives that encouragement to the youth. But he does so letting them know, your decisions have consequences. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So our decisions matter, and they matter greatly. And I'll stand before the Lord someday, not as an in or out judgment, but as a judgment of rewards. That the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, when we'll stand before the judgment seat of the Lord to receive the rewards of what we have done. He gives us instructions to the younger. Well, in verse 10, we have then the next set of two specific commands that the man Solomon gives to those who are younger. And he writes this, remove, that's the first verb of command, remove vexation from your heart and put away, put away is the second verb of command, put away from your body or put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So in giving instructions to the younger, Solomon begins off by saying now, all right, I want you to rejoice in the days that the Lord has given you. They will be days filled with angst, but rejoice in them and walk in the ways of your heart. Pursue the Lord, pursue godly wisdom, pursue godly people, but then pull the trigger when it's time. But remove then vexation or anxiety. He's telling you to to get rid of it. Get rid of anxiety. Put away pain or evil choices from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. That idea, dawn of life, and those words are actually one word in the Hebrew that's translated into our three, dawn of life. The, The word literally means blackness. It's specifically a reference to those who are younger having darker hair. The dawn of life is vanity as is youth. In what sense is the dawn of life vanity or is youth vanity? It's the sense in which you put your hope and your trust in yourself 
and your own abilities and your own energy you have and your own, your own capacity to make things happen. If that's where your faith and trust is, is that, if that's where your hope is, that is vanity. It is meaningless because it's not supposed to support and it's not going to support the weight of life because we worship not the day. We worship the God who has gifted us the day. So it's all supposed to roll back up. We're not supposed to put our hope in our own physical strength and our own physical ability to get the job done. And to the younger, this is important advice because they haven't experienced, I haven't experienced the, the diminishing capacities that age brings to make things happen. I'm not supposed to put my faith and trust and my hope and my own ability and my own energy and my own capacities and my own my own mental acuity. I'm not supposed to put my hope in God. It's supposed to roll up and, and be an opportunity to worship. So remove anxiety. Put away evil choices. I ran across a quote in prep for this that said, Joy was created to dance with goodness, not alone. That's tremendous. That's tremendous. And how many, how many times do we see out there that those who are older, and we're going to make some gross, wide-sweeping stereotypes right now, but those who are older have a greater desire for holiness than those who are younger. Have a greater desire for the things of the Lord than those who are younger. That's why this instruction is given to those who are younger. Joy was intended to dance with goodness, not alone. So to remove anxiety, to be joyful in the days that the Lord has given us and to not be anxious about what we will eat or what we will wear, the answer to that is what Jesus ended with in Matthew 6. Because in Matthew 6, verse 25, He begins to say, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Remove vexation from your heart. Don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about what your body will put on. And at the very end of that, he says, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All of these things will be added to you. It's exactly what Solomon has said. Remove vexation. Don't worry, don't be anxious about these things of life. Put away pain from your body, put away the evil choices, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things are going to take care of themselves. There's a hymn that was written that just beautifully surmises this, and the chorus just says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Those who are young can often be just enamored with the things of earth. What kind of house am I going to live in? What kind of cars am I going to drive? Am I going to be able to afford steak or is it a hot dog night? 
Am I going to work a job in my career field or am I going to find a job that pays the bills? Who am I going to marry? And, and all of that gets cut through when we turn our eyes upon Jesus. And it's not that those things don't matter. But they matter in their proper place. And we worship not the day. We worship not the car. We worship not the house. We worship not any of those things, but the one who has gifted those things to us. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your gifts. Please give us the perspective we need for our gifts to be rejoiced in. That you tell us in the book of James that you are the father of lights of whom there is no shifting shadow. That you are a good gift giver. That every good gift and every perfect gift comes from you. And Solomon has said repeatedly over and over again that you give us the gift of food. You give us the gift of drink. You've given us the gift of relationships. Lord, help us to see these things as gifts. To see the sunshine that's going to be warm against our skin as we walk out of this building as a gift from you. See the meal we share in celebration of our mothers here in a few short minutes as a gift from you. So Lord, we cry out that we need you. We need you every hour. We need you to give us the grace and the mercy we need in our time of need to worship you and you alone. And nothing or no one else. Let me pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.